0: Now, while Paul waited for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. Therefore, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him. And some said, what does this babbler want to say? Others said, he seems to be, proclaiming, be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine is of yours which you speak? For you are bringing some strange things to our ears. Therefore, we want to know what these things mean. For all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear of something new. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. That it is a light to our path. That it is our nourishment. Uh, it is uh, another way in which we can uh, worship you, to see your laws, your characteristics, your grace. And I pray that as we delve into your word, that you would receive our worship, that you would be pleased with those things that we respond. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> One afternoon there was a a uh, man who saw a little league baseball game going on and he thought he'd stick around and see what was happening he uh, went up to the dugout and asked the boy uh, how things were going and what the score was the boy says well it's 18 to nothing we're behind and he said boy you must be really discouraged about that he says why would i be discouraged we haven't even got up to bat yet <laughs> Well, Paul has at least gotten up to bat in some other cities, but he definitely has a lot to be discouraged about because for every point that it seems his team is getting on the board, the other team seems to be getting more on the board. And yet Paul realizes that with the spiritual, quote-unquote, game that he is involved in, uh, the points for Christ accelerate over time. Uh, There is still a lot lot of history uh, to come. And uh, in verse 16, we see that he's not uh, yet been up to bat in this city. He has in other cities, but verse 16 says, Now while Paul waited for them in Athens, according to many commentators, he probably was not uh, even planning to be engaged in ministry here. Uh, He was just waiting for the rest of the team to show up. But God has a different plan. He gets Paul to start preaching. And this morning, we're just going to look at what Paul saw, what he felt, and what he did. So, for a change, you're going to get a three-point sermon. What did Paul see? Well, verse 16 says he was waiting in Athens, so it's pretty obvious that he saw Athens. And if you study First and Second Thessalonians, which give a lot of commentary on this section, we've not delved into it like we could, but it's clear that as Paul waited alone here, he had a lot of time on his hands. And if you... Uh, read the rest of this chapter and his discourse, it's quite clear that Paul was walking all through the streets of this city and uh, seeing the magnificence of this city. Uh, I I think that's pretty clear, and it was a magnificent city. Uh, Ancient historians uh, talk about the incredible splendor of the buildings, of the art, and uh, of the statues uh, that lined uh, this city. The Parthenon has been called, quote, "...one of the greatest masterpieces of architecture." And, quote, "...probably the most perfect building ever conceived and built by man." Now, whether that's an exaggeration or not, it's probably a matter of opinion. But uh, most people do recognize Athens was very much noted for its masterful buildings, its statues, and uh, its artwork. And so Paul would have seen that. You could not have missed it if you traveled to Athens... Uh, He also would have likely have seen some of the philosophers that were in that area. Athens uh, was the birthplace and the growing up place of many of the famous philosophers, men like Socrates, Plato, Solon, Pericles, Demosthenes, Aeschylus, uh, Sophocles, Euripides, Epicurus, Aristotle, Thucydides. And Paul apparently was familiar with some of that philosophy because he quotes it and he later on goes to show the utter bankruptcy of uh, that uh, philosophy, especially in verses 22 through 34, but he would have at least seen some of the philosophers and some of the schools that that city was famous for. Uh, but the city didn't just attract philosophers, it attracted the best of the artisans and mathematicians, musicians, masters of rhetoric, writers, actors, scientists. Uh, the Athenians laid down some of the principles and some of even the uh, the vocabulary and the methods that are used in modern mathematics. Uh, Pythagoras and uh, Aristarchus made uh, major contributions to astronomy. Uh, Archimedes is, is said to have invented the science of hydrostatics, uh, one of the few sciences that that polytheistic culture was able to produce. But this kind of stuff was a stuff that made the ancients awestruck when they came to Athens. This was also the cradle of democracy. This was the cultural and intellectual center of Rome, and it was always crowded with students and foreigners. In fact, if you look at verse 21, you'll see the mention of all of these foreigners that were in the city. It was always packed. There were far more foreigners and students than there were residents, actually uh, citizens of that place. This was the place that attracted some of the brightest minds in Europe, so much so that one author said... The most learned, civilized, philosophical, highly educated, artistic, intellectual population on the face of the globe resided in this city. So it could have been a very intimidating place uh, for Paul to preach. Almost everywhere you went, there were intellectuals. It was a university city. Another author said, No other city has contributed more to the civilization of mankind than Athens, I would say, to the degradation of mankind, But he goes on, he says, It is the place where Socrates was born. Plato, Aeschylus, Sophocles, Euripides, and many others. It is the place that humanism and democracy were born. The intellectual light that Athens created will always be alive. Of course, it was a pagan who wrote that. And I think that Jerusalem and uh, Geneva uh, rival Athens in terms of the influence upon the world. But there is no doubt about it, Athens had an enormous impact upon the world through... Uh, It's thinking, it's uh, contributions. Even to this day, a lot of Christians have been influenced in their thinking by Athens. They don't even realize it. Uh, The wisdom of Athens is almost seductive. And so Paul saw the Athens that everyone else saw, but he did not respond to Athens the way many Christians today respond. Verse 16 goes on to say, "...his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols." Paul didn't just look at the superficial on the top. He went down to the root of what made Athens a bastion of darkness, immorality, and empty philosophy. He uncovers the heart of that culture, and it was idolatry. Now, if, as Henry Van Til says, culture is religion externalized, then there's going to be some kind of a connection between the idolatry that made Paul sick to his heart and this fascinating culture. And not only fascinated men back then, but continues to fascinate people to the day. And I want to examine this idolatry a bit. It would be hard to conceive of any city that had more idols than Athens. One ancient eyewitness said, you're more likely to meet a god than a man in Athens. And the reason they said that is there were 30,000 public statues to every conceivable god. These are public. Not all of the statues and idols that were in, inside of the houses 30,000 idols uh, throughout that uh, city. Uh, And then uh, when you add the images of other uh, gods that were in the private homes, uh, the writings and the music about the gods, the streets, the uh, the forums, and the places dedicated to the gods, you can see why the ancients said that Athens was more religious than any other city. They said it was hard to walk in some places because the streets were so crowded with these statues to the idols Uh, one ancient author said the whole city was one whole altar one entire sacrifice and offering to the gods and so that shows the incredible demonic stronghold that was upon uh, that uh, that city and then you had people selling idols to the tourists you had the, uh, the eight major festivals to the gods and goddesses in which they dedicated themselves to these gods over and over again And so it is no exaggeration when it says that the city was full of idols, or as the New King James translates it, that they were given over to idols. Every aspect of that culture was impacted by that idolatry. Their sports, uh, their love of homosexuality, their strange medicine, their politics. A lot of things we won't even have time to go into this morning. You cannot separate the wisdom of Athens from the idolatry of Athens. Even a lot of of people do try to do that. I don't think you can be successful in doing it. Now, one of the reasons this so troubled Paul was because of the demonic that lay behind the idols. Uh, When some of them say in verse 18, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods, the word for gods there is literally demons. They called their gods demons. They knew all about demons, thousands of demons Uh, that they some of them uh, literally interacted with, uh, even though some of the philosophers uh, poo-pooed that. Uh, But demons were a part of their life. Hosea 4, verse 12. Hosea 5, verse 4 warns people not to just be thinking of the physical idol that is there, but look at the spirits that were behind those idols. Uh, Paul says, "...the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons." That's 1 Corinthians 10, verse 20. And then he proceeds to warn these Christians that they can enter into fellowship with demons if they are not careful. They can be influenced by these demons if they are not uh, guarding themselves uh, against that. And so Athens was literally swarming with demons just like it was swarming uh, with idols, which explains, I believe, in part, the poor results of Paul's preaching of the gospel uh, toward the end of this chapter. There were some who came to Christ. There were not very many who came to Christ. Athens was a stronghold of the enemy. It was a pit of darkness, and no doubt, Paul felt the oppression, just like we missionaries who go into India. You can feel the oppression demonically uh, when you go into some of those places. Now, I, I say this as a heads up, because when you are deeply involved, as some of you are in the culture of our modern Athens, as it were, it's very easy to come under demonic attack, oppression. Uh, even affliction by the enemy. Now, very quickly, let's look at what the fruit of this demonic wisdom was. And uh, this little section doesn't go into all of the demonic fruit because there is so much dealing with their sexual behavior, family, politics, uh, a lot of different things we won't go into. I'm just going to restrict myself to what it mentions uh, in these verses here. But first of all, it produced a variety of humanistic philosophies, such as the two that are mentioned in verse 18. Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him. Now what I find fascinating about uh, his mention of these two philosophies here is that they, uh, what they did is they divorced religion from life and they were somewhat skeptical of the gods that they worshipped. The Epicureans were thoroughgoing materialists. They didn't even believe in an afterlife. And their chief end in life was the pursuit of pleasure. In fact, I would say that's really what they worshipped was uh, the pursuit of pleasure. They believed that the gods were so far removed from life that they really did not have that much influence upon them. But the Epicureans encouraged people to worship the gods because it gave a certain aesthetic pleasure uh, to them. Uh, But man, not God, was the center of their thinking. It was a thoroughgoing humanism. So you can have all kinds of gods and still be a humanist. Okay, there were the Stoics next, who stressed reason and self-sufficiency. They had a pantheistic view of God. Like the Epicureans, they thought everything, including the gods, was materialistic. Uh, But they had a a slightly, maybe even significantly higher moral standard than the Epicureans did. And if you want two phrases that can distinguish between these two philosophies, this is really simplistic, and it's really not this simple, but... You can think of the Epicureans as having the philosophy of enjoy life, and you can think of the Stoics as having the philosophy endure life. That's the difference between. But they neither one had obtained life. They did not have a personal knowledge of God. They had no purpose in life, certainly no purpose after the grave. And the Stoics also had man as the center of their thinking. It was a thoroughgoing humanism. So it's just two different varieties of humanistic thought. Now, like most humanists, they are very cynical of transcendent truth, and so it is not surprising at all when in verse 18, they say, what does this babbler want to say? Uh, The Greek word for babbler is literally seed picker, and it refers to a person who's utterly inconsistent in their philosophy. Uh, It refers to a person who maybe takes a stray idea from over here and another idea from here and another idea from here. He puts it together and he says, this is my philosophy. And they say, it's totally inconsistent. And they thought of what Paul was preaching as being inconsistent. How can there be a transcendent God and at the same time, he be imminent and very personal, related to us? How can God be one God and yet there be three persons? And I'm sure there were other things that they thought uh, were inconsistent. And it's very interesting that Luke goes on to show in verses 19 through 21 that these Athenians were really the seed pickers because they're always looking for something new that they can incorporate uh, into their philosophy. And the descriptions we're going to be giving here are descriptions could be given of many professors in universities today who are highly intelligent, and yet they're utterly cynical of transcendent truth, and they're ready all the time to poke holes in everything. Fourth, it led to separating the supernatural from learning. Now, I found this point very fascinating and unexpected. Uh, I just discovered that this week, actually, as I was uh, doing a little bit more research, refreshing my memory and what these Greeks believed. And uh, they really did have uh, a separating of the supernatural. Now, I would have expected the opposite. With so many idols, I would have expected them to have an integrationist approach to life where, you know, it's, it's mixed with everything. Uh, but they did not. Uh, they did not bring the supernatural, at least into their uh, academics. They didn't deny the existence of God, but the gods had no relevance to life. They, you know, really didn't believe in the miracles of the older Greek uh, mythology. And when Paul teaches about the resurrection in verse 18, it says it was very strange, very foreign to them. Who would want a resurrection, is what a Greek would probably say. Verse 32 says, "...when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked." It wasn't academically respectable in Athens to bring the supernatural into academia. Uh, Unless, of course, you allegorized it, like some of those philosophers did. They were still trying to hold to the religious aspects. They would allegorize it. But when Paul teaches about the resurrection... Uh, in there, uh, it it is quite foreign to them. And it reminds me of the Darwinian insistence that science must never resort to the Bible or to supernatural. And you even see theologians who are supporting Darwinism and they try to insulate, you know, the Bible speaks to church, but you can't be bringing it into, into that area. Their definition of science excludes all supernatural. They think this, we need to depend upon our pure reason Our minds are the judges of truth. I think it's important for us to realize Satan really doesn't care if you're an idolater, you're an atheist, what you are, so long as your mind is insulated from the truth of Scripture and from the power of God in most of life. Now, that mocking of the resurrection also showed the secular, sacred dichotomy that the Epicureans and Stoics had introduced into their education. They didn't have any problem with your worshiping the gods. okay, they, No problem with that. But for them, truth was secular and humanistic. And I know it may seem odd, again, this, this mixture of so much religion, and yet they're not bringing that into, into their academics. But as we'll see, humanism really is religion, it is a religion the religion of humanism. And it's the same kind of dichotomy that we have going on in modern education. In fact, so much of modern education is patterned right after that of the Greeks. When God is excluded from the classroom, it's not an innocuous thing. It flows straight from the demonic culture of of Athens. Even Christians have picked up this sacred, secular dichotomy. Now, let me give you one example that comes from a book, um, Science held hostage by the scriptures or something along those lines that we read some years ago, but when they go to the book of nature for science, psychology, uh, you know, sociology, and things like that, and they go to the Bible for church and worship, they're doing the same thing that those ancient philosophers were doing uh, way back then. Demons know that the human heart longs for worship, and so they make provision for that, Uh, But they also want to insulate the mind from seeing all of life as subject to God. So they had a secular education which left these people doubly hardened in their unbelief. They feel religious, but they're practical secularists. And then this made their mind unrooted and led to syncretism. Now again, it may seem odd that a sacred-secular dichotomy would lead to syncretism, but it always has to. By definition, it has to. And the reason for that is all of life is religious, and if you pretend that something is secular, automatically that secular thing has come from another religious thing. If it's not flowing from your religion, if it seems secular, it's not consistent with your religion, it automatically is coming from another uh, a, a religion, um, Anyway, you can see the syncretism of these Athenians in the religious sphere in all of these foreign idols that they had brought into the city. They wanted all their bases to be covered. And you can see the similar syncretism in academia, which is what the Areopagus was about in their studies by verses 19 through 21. All of these new things that they're trying to pull in. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying... May we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak? For you are bringing some strange things to our ears. Therefore, we want to know what these things mean. They were great at adding all kinds of new things into their philosophy. Uh, they wanted to study everything. And so tolerating new philosophies, that was, that was the politically correct thing to do in Athens back in those days, no matter how bizarre how way, way off the subject it was, unless you became a Biblicist. They could not tolerate that, just as modern academia cannot. And the reason for it is that the Bible is absolute. It does not allow for competitors. It is lethal to all forms of humanism. It hates syncretism. The seventh thing hinted at in these verses that you find in Athens was a love for novelty. And we already saw that in the verse we read, but take a look at verse 21. For all the Athenians... And the foreigners who were there spent their time and nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. It was a relentless quest for learning. As Paul said, always learning, never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. And the novel was honored. By the way, um, I put in your outlines there about the modern PhD. Their requirement that you have to write on something nobody's ever written on before leads to the... uh, the, 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 um, the weird new things and all of the problems that happened uh, back in Athens. And I think Gary North is absolutely right that higher education needs to be completely gutted right from the top down and started all over again from biblical foundations. Uh, We have modeled Athens even in our seminaries. And you can see it in the seminaries, all of the complicated new hermeneutics that come up, you know, that can bring new things in. Uh, some of these hermeneutics are so complicated, the average person would not be able to understand the Bible if the hermeneutic was true. Uh, but anyway, in new books on why women can pastor, after all, new theories on creation. The novel is honored. And then the outline mentions two other things I won't dwell on very long. Learning for the sake of learning rather than the biblical model of learning for the sake of doing, being transformed, glorifying God. And then point nine, trying to seek meaning apart from revelation. Now, that is the heart of humanism, uh, making man's mind the criterion of truth. And I think this is a big problem in Christian circles. Listen to what Martin Luther said. He said, "...the Bible must be used for, quote, judging and illuminating all the statements of all men. Therefore, nothing except the divine words are to be the first principles for Christians. All human words are conclusions drawn from them and must be brought back to them and approved by them." presuppositional thinking is the antithesis of humanism you got to start somewhere and there's really only two options you start with the mind of God as he's revealed it in the scriptures or you start with man's mind the former is Christianity the latter is humanism whether a person calls himself Christian or not uh, those are the two options God's word must be the touchstone for life now let me try to summarize this first point by giving some further lessons we're still dealing with what Paul saw in Athens. First we can learn the absolute need for divine revelation what Luther spoke of as those first principles those axioms for all of life. 1 Corinthians 121 Paul said the world through wisdom did not know God. This city is in utter darkness even though it is being guided by the brightest of the bright. Okay, brilliant wisdom is not going to be sufficient to guide a city. It's not sufficient to save people, but it's not sufficient for education, for government, for uh, council, for a city, for a state. And and America needs the counsel of the the Bible. And the darkness of Athens certainly illustrates that. Second lesson is that there is a danger in thinking you can separate the wisdom of Athens from the idolatry of Athens. This is what the great uh, Roman Catholic scholar, brilliant man, Thomas Aquinas, did when he took the writings of Aristotle, the Greek philosopher who was also at Athens. He took those writings and he tried to wed them together with the Bible and he produced, unwittingly, a syncretistic religion. It was not the purity of uh, Christianity, produced syncretism, and in turn, that produced all kinds of problems. Let me just outline two uh, problems that came as a result of that. Aristotle's false view of money was adopted by the Roman Catholic Church, and it produced (laughs) uh, one of the most messed up socialistic economic systems to ever come out of the church, And Roman Catholic countries have always tended towards socialism, poverty, and stagnation. Now, if you want some research background on this, I don't usually recommend John Robbins' books, but his book, Ecclesiastical Megalomania, which is subtitled The Economic and Political Thought of the Roman Catholic Church, is a fantastic book. deals with this point and the next illustration I'll give. Second illustration, he took the political theories of the Greeks and he wedded that uh, with uh, the the Bible, and uh, the uh, Roman Catholic countries have ent- ended up being very centralized in politics. And again, his book documents this Greek-Romanist political connection. Now, there's a lot of other illustrations we could give. Uh, Aquinas mixed the philosophy, art, historiography, astronomy, and the other views of Athens together with the Bible, and it produced all kinds of errors. A lot of people say Galileo, you know, he was just... Uh, opposed to uh, the, the, the Bible. He was not opposed to the Bible. He based his conclusions on the Bible. He was opposed to the Roman Catholic insistence that Aristotle, his science, was truth. That's what he was opposed to. The bottom line is you cannot separate the wisdom of Athens from the idolatry of Athens. They are inseparably mixed. And I think this is one of the main problems that I have with the classical... Uh, uh, approach to education. It's immersing people in the art, math, history, literature, philosophy of Athens. It's idolizing the wisdom of the world back then, just like they idolized it back then. And when Christians immerse their children in the thinking of Athens, they ought not to be surprised when they begin to act like the Athenians did. When you send your children to Caesar, don't be surprised when they become Romans as upwards of 80% of Christians are doing uh, by the time they are finished with college. It is ultimately impossible to be totally successful in separating the demonic aspects of culture from the culture. The culture itself must be Christianized. This is a problem I have with missions. They just bring the bare-bones gospel. They don't try to change and affect the culture, but many cultures are demonic by definition. Henry Van Til said, culture is religion externalized. In fact, that's a phrase you ought to memorize and have go deeply into your soul. He said, culture is religion externalized. Another way of saying it is that culture is worldview made tangible. Made tangible. We need a radically Christian culture, not a Christianized version of the Athenian culture. Now, I know there's a lot of godly, good, Uh, Christians who disagree with me on this, uh, Doug Wilson being one of those, but what I would encourage you to do is look at the fruit that has come out of this kind of education over the past many centuries, and there's many centuries you can look at, and I don't think that the fruit is good. Uh, I think it has produced uh, a lot of bad fruit down through time. We can't keep doing the same thing and expecting different results. Let me give you just an example. I admire the Puritans. You know I quote the Puritans all the time. I love reading their books. But they lost their children on this very issue. They were trying to wed the educational philosophy of the Athenians together with the Scripture, and they lost their kids. Within two generations, they had become very corrupted. And again, if you don't see what I'm saying is coming from the Scripture, just ignore what I'm telling you. But I'm just giving you a heads up ahead of time that there is bad fruit. Examine it over the centuries. Examine what's happening with homeschoolers who use a classical method of education. Um, uh, Just this morning, I pulled out a quote, and some people say, well, I know a lot of people who have gone through classical education. They've come out real good. Uh, Here's what R.L. Dabney said in the 1800s. He said, Christianity must be a present element of all the training at all times, or else it is not true and valuable education. Someone may say that this broad proposition is refuted at the outset by frequent instances of people who received, at least during a part of their youth, a training perfectly non-Christian and who yet are very useful and even Christian citizens. The answer is easy. It is the prerogative of a merciful providence and the duty of his children to repair the defects and misfortunes of his creatures and to bring good out of evil, but surely This comes far short of a justification for us if we willingly employ faulty methods which have a regular tendency to work evil. Surely it is not our privilege to make mischief for God and good Christians to repair. And I think that's right on. Third lesson we can learn is there's a danger in thinking that education will solve people's problems. Now, that ignores the issue of depravity. Now, you could not have gotten a more educated City in the whole history of the world than you had in Athens, and yet they were plagued with every imaginable civic and moral problem, and their educational solutions were just as bizarre, uh, just as insane as our modern educational uh, examples. For example, they educated their their children very, very young, in sexual issues just like Planned Parenthood. I've been on Planned Parenthood's website uh, a couple of times, and. It's very, very identical. They were a little bit more aggressive than Planned Parenthood presently is, but it did not work uh, much to their chagrin. These philosophers sought to solve the disintegration of Athenian society, but they failed to realize what James says. James says, this wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonic. He's not denying its wisdom. But he said, this wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonic. If education alone could solve America's problems, it would have solved the problems back there in Athens. They tried, they failed. And I think both conservatives and liberals need to, need to realize this. Everybody's banking on education, solving the problems. It won't work. We need to actually dismantle those schools. I think they're part of the problem. The last lesson on this first point that I, I want to highlight is the danger of thinking that technology will solve man's problems. The men who made the remarkable friezes known as the Elgin Marbles were not idiots. They were bright people. Uh, the designers and contractors who built the temples of Luxor, Karnak, uh, who built the Parthenon and the Coliseum, just amazing, marvelously skilled people. They were not fools, but they were foolish in thinking that this ever-increasing knowledge base of technology would solve human problems, and it did not. In the same way, modern man acts as if science and medicine can solve any problem that is thrown at us. You know, the sexual perversions that come out of Planned Parenthood's um, uh, teaching... Is this a producing incurable disease? Yes, it is, but no problem. We're going to pour more research into studying cures, and we're eventually going to cure all of these diseases. Are there problems with the public schools? Well, people say, yes, they are failing, but we need to pour more money and technology in there. We need to more scientifically train uh, these teachers. And I think there is no end to the optimism that people have that science and medicine, technology is going to solve man's problems. It uh, it will not. What Paul saw did not impress him as being the solution. To Paul, the only solution was the kingdom and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so, to summarize what Paul saw, he saw a city that was in desperate need and didn't know it. Okay, they were blind in their wisdom. So we move on to what Paul felt. Verse 16 says his spirit was provoked within him. Uh, the word for provoked is what we get paroxysm from and it, uh, it refers to being greatly upset, angry even. The statutes of those, statues of those idols have amazed people for centuries but it did not create awe and wonder in Paul. It sickened him turned his stomach. It bothered him. It upset him. It glorified rebellion, licentiousness and humanism. What others saw as advancement, Paul saw as slavery to Satan. What others saw as beauty, Paul saw as a gross robbing and distortion of God's glory. Where others were attracted to the art, Paul was repulsed by the art. And notice he's not talking to Jews here, he's talking to about the Gentiles. Uh, he, was, he doesn't think that the Gentiles should be idolaters in any way, um, and we should never become comf- com- comfortable with idolatry in our own city, and it's rife all throughout uh, our nation. It's a different form, but it is idolatry nonetheless. There was a second emotion that we see in Paul, compassion, and you can see that in that he preached to the Jews, he preached to the Gentiles in the open market. Uh, His message on Mars Hill shows compassion, his desire to rescue people from bondage to Satan into the kingdom. And then J.C. Ryle says there's one more emotion that is hinted at, and that is sorrow. One dictionary says that this word for provoked has implied in it a deep concern. Paul was sickened, he was saddened, he was sorrowful by what he saw. It moved him deeply to see hands that were so skilled, so capable, using those skills in opposition to God. So there was likely sorrow involved as well. And in applying this, I don't think I can apply it any better than J.C. Ryle did 150 years ago. So I'll just read what he had to say. Reader, these feelings which stirred the apostle are a leading characteristic of a man born of the Spirit. Do you know anything of them? Hear what is written of Lot in Sodom. He vexed his soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. 2 Peter 2, verse 8. Hear what is written of David. Rivers of water run down from mine eyes because they keep not thy law. Psalm 119, 136. Hear what is written of the godly in Ezekiel's time. They sigh and cry for all the abominations that be done in the midst of the land. Hear what is written of our Lord and Savior Himself. He beheld the city and wept over it. Ezekiel 9 uh, talks about God being about ready to destroy Jerusalem. And He tells His angels who are going to come and bring destruction to write on the foreheads a protective seal of those who sigh and cry over all the abominations that are done within it. Only those were spared from judgment. Only the ones who sighed and cried over the, 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 the gross things that were happening in the land. And I bring that up because I need to point to you that it's not just our minds that need to be transformed, but also our emotions and our actions. We need to have our passions Renewed. We need to learn to hate the things that God hates and to love the things that He loves. We need to have our passions conformable to those of the Lord Jesus Christ, which means we ought to be provoked when we see uh, Pharisees who are keeping other people out of the kingdom. We ought to have love and compassion toward the lost Uh, when we see some of the the frescoes, the occultic symbols that are on the, the state capitol buildings It ought to provoke our spirit, make us cry out to God and long for a renewal of the state of Nebraska. And so the question is, do you have those kind of spirit-given passions that are driving you? It would affect the way in which you pray and the way in which you act. Does secular education bother you deeply? Ask God to capture your emotions so that when you're faced with idolatry, you have the same reactions that Paul had here. Finally, Let's look at what Paul did. First of all, though verse 16 starts by saying, while he waited for them, he could wait no longer. His team had not come yet, but he felt he needed to dive in. He could not procrastinate when God's Spirit was stirring up his Spirit. And by the way, I should point out that one of the surest ways of grieving the Holy Spirit and quenching his activity within your life is to procrastinate... Action when he is prompting you to action when he has prompted you over and over again to do something and you don't want to say no but you just put it off and you put it off and you put it off what's going to end up happening is that the spirit of God is no longer going to bring those promptings he's going to leave you he's going to leave you uh, in your own in your own strength and so cast off procrastination when God's spirit is moving within you secondly Paul did something he couldn't do everything but he felt that he must do something. Verse 17, Therefore he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. They could ignore him, yeah, and many of them did ignore him, but he tried to do uh, what he could. Uh, Now, he had every reason for inaction. After all, most commentators believe that he did not Uh, really planned to do any preaching. He was, uh, just was his escape plan from Berea before he went on to some other uh, city. Uh, But uh, uh, God moved him to immediately take action. He could have said, hey, I've been faithful over the last several months. Uh, I deserve a break. I deserve a break today, uh, some vacation. And these guys are so filled with idolatry. Am I even going to be successful in preaching to them? But he didn't worry about success. He worried about being faithful to God and leaving the results in God's hands. His was the duty, and he did something. And every one of us can do something to oppose evil and advance the cause of God's kingdom. Thirdly, Paul pitted the wisdom of God against the wisdom of man. He didn't just push his way around and shout and get a club and start breaking the heads off of these idols. Uh, He knew he had to start with the minds of men because the mind is the gateway into the soul. And so verse 17 says he reasoned. He reasoned with them. And he didn't reason evidentially. He reasoned from the Scriptures. Verse 18 says, because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. Paul was arguing presuppositionally. Now, he knew they were going to reject that, Humanists always do. And so later on, he takes part two in his speech on Mars Hill and he argues the absolute uh, impossibility of their philosophies with the transcendental argument that if you reject the Scriptures that I've been given to you, you don't have an intellectual leg to stand on. And Lord willing, we'll look at that on another time. But uh, he starts pitting God's good reasoning against their foolish reasoning and he knows right off the bat, they're going to think it's the exact opposite, that it's the gospel that's foolish. 1 Corinthians one twenty three says, But we preach Christ crucified, to the Jews a stumbling block, and to the Greeks foolishness. He knew it would be foolish, but he gives it to them anyway. Why? Well, point D gives part of the answer, and that is that the gospel is the power of God to salvation. It works even when people initially resist it. And so Paul pits the power of Christ, as shown in the resurrection, against the emptiness of those pagan speculative philosophies. Those philosophies could never rescue a person from drunkenness. In fact, if a person wanted to become drunk, you know, he'd go to the god Dionysius. If he was driven by lust, you know, he had Aphrodite to help him. If he wanted to steal, he had Hermes on his side. These gods could not rescue them from sin. They could help them to sin, but they couldn't rescue them from sin. They could kill these people, but they couldn't rescue them from death. And so what he's doing is he is showing a power in Christianity that goes way, way, way beyond the power of their religion. Finally, he made a sharp antithesis between truth and error. He didn't buy into their pluralism. So, well, if you want to believe that, that's okay. No, instead what he does is something extremely insulting. He pits the truth of Scripture against the clear-cut error of their philosophy. You look at verse 30. uh, He calls them ignorant. (laughs) the wisest people in the whole world. He calls them ignorant, okay? He tells them, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No man can come to the Father except through Him. And you can see that from their accusation of what he taught as being new doctrine, strange to our ears. Paul. The point is, Paul was not trying to frame common ground. Oh yeah, we believe a lot of things similar in order to win friendship. No, he's doing the exact opposite. He's showing the utter contrast between the religion and philosophy of the Greeks and the true religion and true philosophy of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we have got to restore this kind of antithesis uh, within uh, the church in the modern age. There's too much softening of the Word of God to make it acceptable. There's too much tossing out of portions of the Word of God that are embarrassing or outdated. What's happening is that people are trying to Uh, to reconcile humanistic philosophy with the Bible, humanistic science with the Bible, humanistic psychology with the Bible. Why? Well, if you want to be uh, generous, you would say it's because they're not wanting to offend. They're wanting to be effective in reaching out with the gospel, trying to reach intellectuals. And so there may be other motives, good and bad, but ultimately they are ashamed of the Bible as being an outmoded document. Let me tell you something. The Bible was just as outmoded for Athens, just as out of touch with reality in their minds as it was in Athens. And yet Paul still preached the word. And by the end of this chapter, there were some people who were brought out of darkness and into light. Uh, The gospel of Jesus is powerful. Let me end with six more lessons. First, don't be afraid to stand alone. Paul felt all alone in a pagan city, but he stood his ground for the glory of God. Now think about this. Where would we be today if Athanasius had not stood all alone against the emperor and against the heretics in the fourth century when he was defending the Trinity? Some people told him, give it up. The whole world is against you. And he said, well, Athanasius is against the whole world then. He stood alone, and the church eventually came around. Where would we be if Luther had not stood alone against the emperor? Where would we be if men, women, and children had not sometimes stood alone, burning at the stake in order to advance God's glory? Where would Naaman have been if the little maid of Syria had been ashamed of her faith and had not stood alone in declaring the only solution to Naaman's leprosy, the God of Israel? We must be willing to stand alone. A second admonition that I to give is that we really shouldn't be impressed with the philosophy of Athens, the art of Athens, the educational model of Athens, which has become the model in America. The citizens of Athens were taught how to read, write, understand math, sciences, arts, philosophy, literature in a purely academic way without any reference to God. Well, that's pulling out the two most important foundations of Hebrew education. The first being, we've got to ground all of our education in the Word of God to His glory. And the second being, that we've got to apply that education and make it transformational in people's lives. Our government schools teach people how to read, write, understand math, science, the arts, philosophy, and literature without any reference to God or the Bible whatsoever. That means it is a godless Education. It is an atheistic education. God is taken out of everything. Robert L. Dabney said that to have education without Christ is like reading Shakespeare's Hamlet, uh, play Hamlet without Hamlet. It's to take it out completely. Uh, he went on to say, the comparison of these truths will make it perfectly plain that a non-Christian training is literally an anti-Christian training. And personally, I am very desirous of ending all government education because without Christian education, America will never be restored. It will never be restored. We're just going to raise up godless generation after godless generation with increasing, increasing fruits that flow out of Athens. Read the horrible lifestyle of Athens and you'll begin to understand why America has increasing violence, homosexuality, pedophilia, debauchery of every form, cheating, clogged courts, all kinds of problems that flowed from there. You cannot follow the educational model of Greece without seeing some of the results of Greece in our land. The Puritan writer Matthew Henry said, and this city, after the empire became Christian, continued incurably addicted to idolatry, and all the pious edicts of the Christian emperors could not root it out. "...till by the eruption of the Goths that city was in so particular a manner laid waste that there are now scarcely any remains of it. It is observable that there, where human learning most flourished, idolatry most abounded." And the most absurd and ridiculous idolatry, which confirms that of the apostle, that when they professed themselves to be wise, they became fools. And in the business of religion were of all other the most vain in their imaginations." The world, by wisdom, knew not God. They might have reasoned against polytheism and idolatry, but it seems the greatest pretenders to reason were the greatest slaves to idols. So necessary was it to the reestablishing even of natural religion that there should be a divine revelation and that centering in Christ. Matthew Henry was saying, that until we restore the Bible as the foundation for education and see Christ as the goal of all education, we will never be able to reform any society. He said despite all of the attempts of Christian emperors to convert Athens, they were not successful. Why? Because they missed out on the most important thing, the education of their children. Matthew Henry understood this. Most modern Christians do not. Another lesson is that we must not neglect the supernatural. During the 1700s and 1800s, there were many in the church who mocked the idea of the, uh, the supernatural and the resurrection of Christ just became a symbol. But for Paul, it was the very heart of the gospel. Read 1 Corinthians 15 sometime. You say, you'll see, if you take out the resurrection, you don't have a gospel. Now, there are many people who believe in the resurrection, but they don't believe in miracles. And we just need to realize you cannot neglect the supernatural. It was a part of Paul's message. Not just in word, but in power, he said. Point D, don't be overwhelmed by idolatry and unbelief. Now, it's appropriate to get vexed in spirit. It's appropriate to get angry or sorrowful, but don't be overwhelmed. Don't throw up your hands and give up and say it's pointless. There's no point in even trying uh, to affect culture. Even though God does not convert everyone in Athens, there was a city that was just as pagan as Athens was, and it was called the city of Nineveh, and God converted that entire city from the smallest of them to the greatest of them. He did it in one day. God can do it. That's not up to us. What we need to do is seek to do what we can to advance the cause of Christ and leave the results in His hand. Don't be overwhelmed. Point E says you can be faithful in a pagan city. Paul did not succumb to the demonic. He did not give up his testimony. He did not adopt the philosophy and the worldview of of Athens. He did not get seduced by the debauchery of Athens. Uh, even though he was an intellectual and their philosophy is fascinating, he was not sucked in by their philosophy. He did not become Hellenistic. He, be, he, be, he kept himself a pure, consistent Christian. And we too can be faithful in the midst of a wicked and a perverse generation if we will have the antithesis of Paul, maintain Christian education, not borrow practices from the world, and if we will do all of our thinking from the Scripture by God's power. And this is my last admonition. Pursue faithfulness to the old paths, not novelty. The Greeks in Athens loved the newest fad to titillate their curiosity. Verse 21. And when that idea became passe, then they're always looking for something new. Paul completely steers a different course. He steers us to the old paths and in doing so, receiving God's favor. When the intellectuals of Athens confront you, don't be intimidated. Don't get sucked in. Anchor yourself in the thinking of the Word of God and cry out to God's Spirit uh, for His empowering. Because if you've got the Word of God and you've got the power of His Spirit, then God can enable you to be faithful in Athens too. Even if the score is 18 to 0 and you're not even up to bat yet, He can make you more than conquerors through Christ. May it be so, Lord Jesus. Amen. Father, thank You for Your Word. It is a touchstone for our lives. Forgive us though, Father, for the times where we forget that and we stray off of its mark. I pray that You would cause us to be passionate for the cause of Christ. Passionate for truth a passionate, Father, to change our society. Father, we live in in Athens today, and we know that uh, if it is Your will, uh, these people can be so blinded that there would be no restoration. But we plead the kingdom of Jesus, that You have given to Him all of the nations of this world. We plead those promises. We plead Your glory. We plead, uh, Father, the joy of the angels in heaven. Uh, We plead the purity of the bride of Jesus Christ and we pray, O God, that You would do a marvelous thing in our own day, that You would not allow us as a nation to be cast aside and utterly destroyed as Athens was. Father, be glorified, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.